Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. All right, I want to talk to you about scrutiny. When we talk about Budo as a wisdom tradition, the assumption is that you have a skill in scrutiny that you can distinguish the false from the true, the practical from, from the impractical, the valid from the invalid, the authentic from the inauthentic. Even in one of our meditations that you read at the ringing of the bell, at the start of each class, it holds value what should be valued. But you see the assumption there is that you can distinguish the valuable from the invaluable. This is a huge assumption. It gets more complicated when you realize how the ego tripartite mind functions in the sense that probably what you value, what you deem is true, truthful, right, good, any positive thing you want, even moral, although we talked on that last time, any positive attribute is likely just a working of that egoic mind meant to just reify the false self. Long have the mystical traditions held a way of developing scrutiny. And the answer is experience, firsthand experience. Let me tell a few stories to get you in the discussion. So you know I am a state-certified firearms instructor, right? And you know that I'm FBI-certified firearms instructor. You know I'm a range master for my agency. I'm also a state-certified Glock armorer. The tagline for Glock is Glock perfection. I was trained as an armorer. Under the state, I wouldn't even say the state, it's probably half the country, just so you understand the gun industry. 
These weapons come with a warranty. If they don't perform as the warranty allows for or prescribes, you would turn it back into the manufacturer and they'd fix your weapon and then they send it back out to you. The public doesn't realize that Glock does not fix your weapon. You send it to Glock and then Glock sends it to this gentleman. This gentleman is basically the gunsmith for almost every single manufacturer of firearms, not just Glock. In other words, this is the dude. This is the guy that trained me in armoring. That's a pretty good lineage, do you see? He always, as he's introducing the Glock mechanics to me, and he's letting all his wisdom come forward, all his experience, do you see, was repairing these weapons. All his understanding of how firearms work and how they're designed to work. He just laughs at the tagline, Glock Perfection. The weapon is far from perfect. And he makes a joke. We're on the fifth generation. If it was so perfect, why didn't the first generation just stay the only generation? And then he gives you the history. With, within each generation, there's not only one variant. There's several variations within each generation. Why? Because it wasn't functioning properly. And Glock had to go and re-engineer it. If you look at the public perception of Glock, though, that's like the weapon. The Glock 19 is overwhelmingly the most purchased weapon. Most law enforcement agencies utilize the Glock. The fact that more cops carry Glocks on duty inspires more civilians in their confidence that this is the weapon. Then they believe the tagline, Glock Perfection. They'll talk about how it continues to run all the time. It just runs and runs and runs. Not according to this armor. As a rangemaster in my own agency, I see a lot of officers carrying the Glock. You know what I see? A lot of Glocks malfunctioning on the line. You just aren't exposed to it as a regular consumer. You don't see it. You only see your sample of one, do you see? And then you have the tagline, Glock Perfection, and it supports your position. And then you build the narrative up. This is the cop's gun. That's what most cops are carrying. It must be awesome. My sample of one actually reifies and makes more valid in our own minds that position. So the armorer teaches me uh, there's a three-pound spectrum on your Glock trigger. What does that mean? That means it'll break the shot differently every time between six pounds to nine pounds. 
It doesn't mean like person A's Glock breaks at six pounds and person B's Glock breaks at nine pounds. It means person's A gun sometimes breaks at six pounds and could break all the way up to nine pounds. The thing rattles and shakes all over the place. So the Generation 5 has a match-grade barrel in it. It has a higher precision of machining. But when your barrel wiggles all over the place in the slide, it doesn't matter how well machined that thing is. The match-grade barrel is useless because it moves within everything. When you take the weapon apart, you truly understand the weapon. You can smell the business model. Let's not make the best gun. Let's not make the perfect weapon. Let's make the least expensive manufacturable weapon and sell it for the largest profit margin. That's what's going on. Why do agencies adopt them? Because they cost less. It's not that cops are using them because they're, they think they're awesome all the time, but because agencies can save money. But behind all of this reasoning, do you see, is the tagline, Glock Perfection, a marketing campaign which no one recognizes as a marketing campaign by a business trying to make profit anymore. They just pick and choose facts here in air quote that support the position. It shouldn't be Glock Perfection. It should be Glock Good Enough. What do I mean by good enough? Well, to be combat effective, you don't really need your barrel stabilized. A human body is pretty big. Under combat stress, you probably won't be all that great a marksman anyways. I just need to get rounds downrange. It's probably going to work. If you take this into the military setting, my Glock is not my primary weapon. It's a secondary weapon. Stuff has to go way wrong before I put my rifle off to the side and pull this weapon out. As a secondary weapon, it's, more, it's, it's even better than good enough. You could say it's really good enough. But it doesn't make it a perfect handgun. If you look at the secondary market that has risen up around Glock, you get more clues that this is not perfect. What do you do as a Glock owner if you have any experience at all in firearms? You're going to start changing things right away. The first thing you're going to do is get rid of those junky plastic sights. You're going to get metal sights on there maybe some night sights, maybe a front fiber optic. Why are these sights made of plastic? 
because it's inexpensive. If you look at businesses that have risen to great wealth and fame, it's because they work on Glocks. What does that mean? They change Glocks because they're not perfect. There's plenty of work you can do on them. So you have aftermarket companies that develop triggers to get rid of that three-pound spectrum. Maybe we'll drop it down to two pounds. One trigger in particular, the Timney trigger, is fantastic, but it's a total redesign of the Glock trigger. It's made to go in the Glocks, but when you stick a Timney trigger in there, it's not a Glock trigger anymore. It doesn't even work the same way. It's no longer the uh, double action trigger that a Glock has. If you look at what Glock did now, They've come out with their, per, their own professional trigger. What is it based on, the Timney trigger? What did the Glock team do when, the Tim, when Timney came out with their Timney trigger? The Glock handgun team, they put Timney triggers in their Glocks. Just imagine that for a little bit. <laughs> You're like sponsored by Adidas, but you're like, the Adidas shoes suck. We're going to wear Puma. Okay. You take a corporation or a company like Zev Technologies. What are they going to do? They're going to change that Glock, that Glock geometry. That weird Luger geometry that Glock adopted does not have an intuitive pointability. So what does a company like Zev do? They're like, hey, give us your Glock. We're going to shape the grip and give you more of a 1911 geometry, which has a natural pointability. So when John Browning invented the 1911 and he's trying to figure out the geometry between the grip and the slide, he used the pointability of his hand. So he just pointed his finger at something and looked at the angle that that hand has in relation to the wrist, and that's the 1911 grip geometry. So as I train peace officers in, for example, what is called today reflexive shooting, but used to be called point shooting, when they don't have their sights available, overwhelmingly Glock shooters end up shooting really, really high because they adopt that natural wrist angle that John Browning identified. They forget they have to count, count that wrist down. Do you see? So under stress, what do you tend to see? Everyone goes to that natural point ability. Glock shooters start shooting high until they start shooting low for those trigger reasons. So a company like Zev comes along and realizes this and they start shaping the, the Glock grip. They add more texture so it doesn't slip in your hand. They shape the trigger guard so you can get higher. And they shave down the tang on the rear of the pistol to change that geometry. Again, even then, you still might think it's good enough.
It's kind of hard now, in my opinion, to think it's perfect at this point. But let's say you're like, it's good enough, it's good enough. A lot of that comes from you haven't shot anything else. You haven't experienced anything else. That's why it's good enough. You've been able to accomplish what you've been able to accomplish with it, but you haven't experienced something else. Interstaccato. What I have found as new officers have come to experience a firearm as produced by staccato, it's always on their face. I had no idea a handgun could be this different, this much better. Why did they hold that position? Because they hadn't experienced, they hadn't shot it yet, do you see? Once you shoot it, you realize, whoa, this is really different. This feels like cheating. Watch me put a bullet hole in a bullet hole. Totally impossible to do consistently with that rattling gun. Impossible with a three-pound spectrum trigger. And then research a little bit. Where'd staccato come from? 25 years of dominating the competition world. Well, who's in the competition world? People that are trying to beat other people at differences of hundreds of a second. This is, this is far from good enough. This is the best, do you see? People trying to be the best. Not just trying to get meat on metal, combat effectiveness. Combat effectiveness, the way you want to understand it is good enough. Of course, I can be more combat effective with something that goes exactly where I want it to go every single time. Do you see that? That's why competition shooters then utilize their STI pistols. STI changed their name to Staccato. It's the same company. So when these new peace officers shoot the Staccato, they all have that look. Holy cow, I had no idea this was possible. Experience, do you see? Experience washes the dust in our eyes. It allows us to tell the difference between what is real, what is not real, what is true, what is not true. We don't want to base things in our reasoning because our reasoning is part of the ego tripartite mind, do you see? We want to base things on experience. You might be able to get yourself in the door by looking at the experience of others, such as, for example, why do most of these competition shooters prefer this STI model, do you see? 
why is this three-pound spectrum hinge trigger with this weird grip angle not dominating the competition world unless when it does it's not radically modified from its original design you could kind of research that do you see where you start looking for inconsistencies in the tagline glock perfection but ultimately you won't know until you actually experience the difference then you know so i've even had friends who know this they won't shoot my weapon they're like i don't want that realization i just i want to believe that good enough is perfect they tell me no i'm not shooting your gun There's some validity in that still, I think, right? Versus the kind of lack of experience, ignorance-based surety that blinds us from distinguishing the valuable from the invaluable or the authentic from the inauthentic, okay? I think this is important. Obviously, as I, as I said, the assumption of a wisdom tradition is that you can tell the difference between the wise and the unwise. But what is not so easy to understand as a modern is I didn't say use your reason. I said the opposite. Your reason is going to lead you astray. You have to use your experience. I want to draw your attention to a passage often quoted by moderns and attributed to the Buddha on this very topic. What should you believe is authentic as true? Okay? This passage goes something like this. Believe nothing, O monks, just because you have been told it, or it is commonly believed, or because it is traditional, or because you yourselves have imagined it. Do not believe what your teacher tells you merely out of respect for the teacher, but whatsoever, after due examination and analysis, you find to be conducive to the good, the benefit, the welfare of all beings. That doctrine believe and cling to and take as your guide. You're like, wow, hell, hell yeah. Use your reason, do you see? This is very, very common, commonly repeated over and over again, attributed to the Buddha. If you remember on the Sension page, one person shouted this back at me, quoted this thing, it's false, it's not a true quote of the Buddha, you can find it anywhere on the internet, you see, it's repeated over and over again, just like all the new things attributed to Bruce Lee nowadays, and then it's again, and it's shared, and it's over and over, and now there's things he said that he never said. And everyone believes it. What does the real passage say? And where does it come from? 
It comes from a sutra of the Pali Canon, the Kalama Sutra. These were a people, Kalama. And the Buddha is in his town, in their town. But in their town, they have multiple gurus and yogi, do you see? And they're all saying this or that. And they ask the Buddha, man, how do I tell? I can't tell. It all sounds good. Do you see? How do I know what's real and what's not real? Here's the original version. Now, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability or by the thought, this is a quote, this, is con this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that, again, quote, these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness. Then you should enter and remain in them. Again, let's look what he listed. Don't go by reports. Don't go by logical conjecture. Well, there goes reasoning. Don't go by inference. Just don't trust your intellect, man. When do you, when do you follow? When you know. When you know for yourself that these qualities are skillful. What does he mean? When you experience. You have to experience it. Towards that end, I'd like to now talk about the politics of a founder. When you look at the history of a tradition and you find it at its core, its core practice, at its earliest mystical states, you don't have a founder. You have a person to emulate. You have a person like to become. If you look, for example, at the Buddhist tradition, we'll stick there. You had the Buddha, but the Dharma heir is an exact copy of the Buddha. This is hence the phrase mind to mind transmission. As you go over time and people lose track of the mystical aspects of their practice, that's when you have this founder that is different. And at that point, the founder is not someone you are supposed to duplicate in yourself. The founder is a ceiling of which you will never rise above. The founder is someone to mark what you can never become. That's how a founder works when the tradition has become totally political and has moved past 
that priestly cultural movement into your academic movement. So we have a founder. We have Morihei Ueshiba. And early on, at one point, his understanding was, you can do exactly what I can do. In fact, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to experience what I'm experiencing, and then you can now decide that this is authentic. Go with it. But today, the founder of Morihei Ushaba is a limit. You can never be as good as he. That is what the founder means. So how can you experience what he experienced? Then what are you basing your practice on? Just reason, conjecture, legends, stories, do you see? Today, another person on the Facebook page is, uh, just came out and said it. it was very, it's weird, right? He's all like, how, why, why, would you, why would you think you're better than that teacher? And you go deeper, like, where's that question come from? Because you can't be better than that teacher, do you see? Why? Because that teacher has the accolades, the political markings, the rank, the title, the ethnicity. You see, run the experiments. Experiment means experience. Run the experiments. In this discussion, I'm talking about you can't stand still. Let a person gain whatever distance and angle they want and you're going to get out of the way of whatever they're going to do. You can't not do it. It's not possible. That means O-sensei didn't do it either. That means the Shihan don't do it either. They cannot do it. But I believe they can. I believe this Glock is perfect. Run the experiment then. Stand still, let somebody attack you with whatever they want, find out for yourself. Don't just say they must be able to. They must be able to. They have this title. They have this rank. They have this political body under them. No, we don't give a shit about that. Run the experiment. Find out for yourself. Understand how we see this founder, this political use of the founder all over the place. It's all over. It marks the modern world. Experience is what they don't want you to have. When you have Jesus, it's a you can't be Jesus. You could never be in that much communion with God. You cannot be the Buddha. 
You cannot be O Sensei. You are limited to something less by default. You cannot experience what he experienced. You're always wrong. You're always less. You're only partial. Unless you go through our institutions, then you're not. But you're still not O-sensei. Do the experiments. See for yourself. Don't guess. There's no need to guess. But don't fall for the stories. Don't fall for the legends. See for yourself. If you think about it, it requires much more humility to see for yourself. But people will think, get in line, bow, shut up, don't point out the nudity of the emperor. Because if you did, it's rude. There's no humility. How dare you say you've passed those sensei's skill? What pride do you see? But to say, I'm going to run my own experiments. I'm going to find out. I'm going to keep running my experiments. So I keep finding out. This is true humility. Because this is not the feeding of the ego tripartite mind over and over and over. This is at the core of your practice. This ability, this skill in scrutiny. But you have to understand, it's not about thinking. It's not about political allegiance. All of those things you need to be skeptical of. Both your thinking and their institutions. They will get in the way of your experience. And as I've said right now, that's their job. That's the point of an institution, is to rob from the individual his or her experience. If the institution cannot control your experience by which you determine what is true and false, you become an enemy of the institution. Every single institution, the main purpose of their functioning is to stop the individual from experiencing truth directly. There's no need for you, it says. Here is your experience. Here is your truth. Go away. Pay your money. Wear our clothes. Do what we say. This is why I say, from that point of view, 
this dojo is anti-institutional. This dojo is sacrilegious. This is why there's a caveat for all the Federites. You're in the wrong place, buddy. Here we're going to experience for ourselves, so we're going to have our own thoughts. We're not going to buy your single experience. We're not going to buy your truth. I haven't experienced it yet. I'm not getting in line. I'm not going to dress the same. I'm not going to act the same. I'm not going to be what you want me to be. I'm not part of a group. I'm an individual seeking experience. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.